Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are a holy God, that you are the God who is full of light and truth and goodness and beauty and justice, love, that you are a God in whom there is no shadow or turning. You are not a God who is always changing his mind like a man would. You are a God who is permanent, a God who is eternal. You are a God who is infinite. You are the God who is omniscient, knowing all things. You are the God who is granted to us undeserving people such forgiveness and such hope and such a salvation that there is scarcely any human words that we could utter that would adequately express gratitude and the joy we have in our hearts for what you've done. In sending Jesus to our rescue, you showed how much you love us, that you were not sitting idly by and watching us languish, but instead you had a master plan from all eternity to send forth your one and only Son into the world to redeem sinners for your glory. And God, we thank you for being counted among those whom you have redeemed and reconciled. We thank you, God, for the grace and the mercy that you have lavished upon us. We thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from the muck and mire of sin, for delivering us from the tyranny of Satan, that we are no longer fearful of death. We are no longer people in this world who find all our hope and all our meaning in this world, but instead we know that there's a greater world to come, that you will establish your kingdom upon this earth and you will reign as king of kings forever and ever, a place in which righteousness dwells, where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more injustice. And God, we long for that day. And until that day comes, Lord, help us to be the kind of men and women that will make known what you have done what you are doing, and what you are yet to do. May it be on our lips, may it be evident with our lives, and may even what we're doing this morning, gathering in your name, may that be a witness to the watching world. So Father, be with us as we come to your word now, granting us all that we need, eyes to see the wondrous beauties in your word, help us to have ears to hear from you, and God, be attentive to our needs and speak to us in the ways that we need it most. I pray that you would grant us wills and hearts that not only submit to you, but eagerly desire to serve you. Grant it all to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Uh, I'm grateful for Matt, Pastor Matt Pierce preaching last week. Uh, my family and I were able to get away for a little while. And uh, I was sleeping eight, nine hours a night, reading, relaxing, doing all kinds of good stuff. And then we got home from vacation and now it's like four to five hours of sleep a night and I'm all stressed. I need a vacation. <laughs> you guys know how that works. So I'm glad you're here. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. If you're new to our church, I do want to welcome you. If you have any questions about our church, what we're about and, and whatnot, we have many people that would love to answer questions. I being one of them. I love being on the courtyard, meeting new people, uh, just getting to know uh, a little bit of your story, where you're from, why you're here, how you got here, all that kind of good stuff. So uh, feel free to come and interrupt any conversation that we're having out there to introduce yourself. Um, and we have an information booth available as well, connecting point, um, and we would love to just uh, hear from you and, and be able to connect with you. We're going to continue our series in the church, 
And uh, today we're going to talk about covenant church membership. Now, covenant church membership is a very interesting subject. Uh, It is something that I personally um, was never really taught nor had any interest in until one day I was sitting on a deck with a guy named Phil, and uh, he was a missionary speaker at Hume Lake Christian Camp, and uh, we were talking, and uh, he had some interesting things to say about church membership and about pastoral ministry and it kind of changed the trajectory of my life. So before I get to that, I'm gonna invite you to go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. We'll spend some time in this text, kind of breaking down some elements of it, uh, but then we're gonna hightail it all around the New Testament because what I'm doing is I'm gonna try to present to you a case for biblical church membership, which is gonna be uh, what's necessary to do that is for me to go to various scripture verses to kind of show how the Bible talks about church membership and that kind of thing. So we're gonna be all over the place, but for now, this will be the text uh, that will be of most importance. Uh, And as you find your way to Hebrews 13, verse 17, let me tell you about a couple things. One of them is our prayer ministry has launched a seven-day prayer initiative. And so we have these prayer guides available. Um, You can scan them in the QR code and get it. Uh, There's a table out front. And we're really praying that the Lord would use our church to reach people uh, for his namesake and for his glory. We're praying for the health of our church. We're praying that God would do a mighty work in and through our church, reviving us and restoring us and renewing us. And so I would encourage you to join us in that prayer. I want to let you know about Operation Christmas Child. You probably heard about it last week if you were here. If not, uh, we collect shoe boxes and we fill them with uh, some gifts and send them on their way. And so those shoe boxes are available. You can pick them up and uh, then you can fill them and drop them off at the appointed time. Awana has their table out front. And then the last one is really important. Uh, that is our business meeting. So we have a business meeting scheduled next Sunday at 2 p.m. Um, What that means is it's expected that all of our members would show up and it's so convenient that I'm talking about church membership this week and show you why that's important. Um, And so that's at 2 p.m. And one of the reasons why I wanna highlight the church, uh, why I wanna highlight the the members meeting or the business meeting is because we're gonna have an opportunity to be introduced to a potential new elder, somebody that we have vetted for about two years, the uh, the elders and I, and now we're putting it before the congregation, uh, the church, and you can have a time to grill him, invite him to your small group, uh, test his theological acumen, and I mean this in all seriousness, grill him, is he a man of character? We have, no, we have no time to be having knuckleheads on the elder board. And so we need to make sure that we vet uh, Lee Sandy Diego. he's the one playing drums. Um, so don't scowl at him as he plays. Uh, but nonetheless, he is a, one of our candidates. And so you'll be, have an opportunity to int- uh, be introduced to him. We're gonna be welcoming in new members. We'll also be talking about our financial updates. And then one of the things that we're gonna do as well is just kind of give you guys an update a little bit about just what we're doing as a church, ministry-wise and whatnot. Over the, over the uh, past several months, we've gotten a lot of people that have asked questions about where we stand on this issue and that issue. And people are saying, why doesn't the church speak out about this? And why aren't you talking about that? We have a lot of reasons why we do what we do. Um, And we've talked about that uh, in letters. We've talked about it in videos I've made. We've talked about it at business meetings. And so what we've done when we get the correspondence is I've actually linked to a video or I've linked uh, to a letter we've written or I linked to our business meetings. And I said, actually, we talked about that very thing here. And they're like, oh, okay. And so I just wanna let you know, we've communicated quite a bit and it's not really our fault that you're not paying attention. (laughs) 
And, um, and so I also want to encourage you, like, part of the business meeting, why we have the quarterly business meetings is because preaching and, and worship through singing and praying and scripture reading, that's not the time to do public service announcements. Does that make sense? So instead, we want to reserve that to non-worship time, which is why we have a business meeting. So that's why you don't hear me commenting on every social issue uh, in the preaching is because that's not the time or place. Make sense? So come to the business meeting. If you're a member, it's expected. If you're not a member, come anyways and just kind of see what's going on. Uh, we'll teach you the secret handshake and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> no such thing. No such thing. Hebrews thirteen seventeen was the verse that that was read to me by uh, Phil, who I mentioned, who's a missionary in Quito, Ecuador. And uh, I was talking to him at Hume Lake, and he was asking me what I plan on doing with the rest of my life. And it's like, what kind of question is that? I don't know. I'm 23 years old. I'm not exactly sure. My whole life was heading towards professional baseball. Um, and then my fateful injury uh, detoured that. And so the other, the backup to playing professional baseball was to be a teacher and a history teacher specifically and to coach baseball and coach football at the high school level. That's what I wanted to do. So I got my undergrad in education and uh, there I was uh, broke down and dreams shattered and sitting on a deck at Hume Lake Christian Camp and he said, I see gifting in you and I think you should really pursue full-time ministry. And that was something that I had kind of played with, toyed with, but I wasn't quite sure. I didn't want to be a pastor. And the reason why I didn't want to be a pastor was because they have too much to do and too much responsibility, and uh, they have too many people to disappoint. Um, and I just, I, I, I was in a church, I saw it firsthand, and I wanted no part of it. And so he opened the Bible, he read this verse, and he said, Phil, you're, you're missing out on a lot of joy. You're missing out on a lot of things that God could do in you and through you with the church. And so uh, Heather and I were dating at the time. I started to send out uh, resumes and applications to, I don't know, over 40 churches. Got turned down by them all, um, except for one, and ended up the Lord opened up that door. But I want to read this verse because this verse is the thing that, that really changed my life. And I don't mean that like, you know, like, oh, man. I mean it like seriously. It, it was revolutionary. And put it on the screen just in case you can't find Hebrews 13, 17. And he read this to me. He said, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And I remember Phil specifically saying, you can be in someone's life something that God uses for their advantage. And I had never thought of that before, but he was like, God can use you and your gifts in somebody's life for their advantage. Why would you sit on that? I was like, whoa. <laughs> but then I was like, wait a minute, Phil. This, wait a minute, this verse... Look with me. Obey your leaders and, and submit to them. So you want me to be a leader in a church. They're keeping watch over people's souls. And they're going to have to give an account of that on judgment day. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't think so. You want me 
to stand before God at the end of days and to have to give an account of a whole bunch of people how their spiritual life is. I have to lay that before the Lord. Here's what I've done. Here's who they are. This is what they are. Uh Uh-uh. Because I know as a church member how fickle I am and how unwilling I am to take critique or correction. And you want me to be in charge of a bunch of people who are just like me? Mm -mm. And I remember too, now as a pastor, that I am that leader, one of the leaders, as a fellow elder, that I will one day stand before Almighty God on the judgment seat of Christ and I will have to give an account, name names of the people to whom God has entrusted to me. As if God will say, what about Jimmy? What about Johnny? What about Jane? What about June? What did you do with them, Phil? Holy smokes. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter. Do you remember when Peter denied Jesus and then three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And each time Jesus concluded with the phrase, feed my sheep. Which tells me you are not my sheep. You are Jesus' sheep. And I, as a steward of you, the sheep, his sheep, I'm going to have to give an account of what I did with my stewardship of you. And the question that rocks me, and, and honestly, one of the reasons why I haven't been sleeping well recently, is because I have a terrifying thought in my head. Am I adequately feeding the sheep? because I'm gonna be judged for that. So who wants to be a fellow elder with me? (laughs) I take this with utmost seriousness. I take church membership and leadership as if it's exactly what the Bible describes it, blood earnest seriousness. Jesus died for you all. I can't play games with that. So Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is in your best interest that I as a leader and pastor and fellow elder should labor with joy, not begrudgingly. So before we get into unpacking this and talking about church leadership, let me say, our church uh, membership, let me say this. When I talk about the need to be a church member or the fact that I believe biblically that every Christian ought to be a member of a definable, discernible, distinguishable local church, some of you that sounds weird. For some of you that's like, what? Really? You think that? Like, I don't know about that. Why is it that we have that response? So what I want to do today is build a case for church membership. I want to build a case for church membership from the Bible. And I'm going to do that with four different ways of doing it. I'm going to talk about whether or not the early church kept numerical records, whether they developed an administrative process to keep track of who's in, who's out. We'll talk about the commands called one another commands, 
which imply church membership. And lastly, we'll talk about the metaphors God uses to describe his church, like the body, the temple, the structure, the flock, things like that. But the fifth one is the nail in the coffin. If I haven't convinced you after those four, I will by the fifth one, I think, Lord willing. And that is, we're gonna talk about church discipline. And we're gonna talk about the need for it because Jesus commands it. We'll talk briefly about how to do it, but most importantly, we'll see how it cannot happen apart from church membership. And therefore, church discipline requires church membership and church membership and church discipline are things commanded in scripture. And if we neglect either, we are living in disobedience. That's what I'm putting out there. And now it's my responsibility to show you because you don't want me just saying stuff. You want to see it, don't you? So I'm going to clear the ground of all the rocks and rubble that will prevent me from building. And so let me do that now by just listing three things that I think are in each of our minds and hearts of why we don't think church membership is important. Because anytime I've ever talked about church membership, here's the one question that comes up. Why are we talking about this? Does it even matter? And the answer is emphatically yes. So here's why I think a lot of times people don't think it really matters. One is this, is that there's a rise of individualism, as you well know. We talked about this all through the month of August. Um, A lot of people just understand that their life is all about them. It's their dreams, their hopes, their desires, and things like that. And so the idea of church membership, that you should belong to something which is bigger than yourself, which involves a lot of strangers perhaps, or people that you're not necessarily related to and whatnot, and the idea that you're going to commit to them and they to you and you have to sacrifice at some level for them, it just doesn't make sense. That's counterintuitive to our culture today, and it sounds odd. Wait a minute. You want me to actually like give my life up in some way for somebody else? Ah, No, I don't want to do that. And so I think what ends up happening is as Michael Horton, who's a theologian and author and professor, he writes this. He says, in today's evangelical church culture, quick and easy has beaten, tried and tested. Rapid growth in numbers has counted more than slow growth in grace. Pragmatic results, not formal structures, have been viewed as keys to church success. And along the way, many of us were raised with the evangelistic appeal. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm just asking you to consider whether you will accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You've heard that before? And so he goes on to conclude, it's not surprising then if this is how we introduce people to Christianity. It's that it's not about other people. It's only about you and Jesus. It's not surprising that after successive movements of this kind, getting saved would have little to nothing to do with church. And so what ends up happening is, as you think about it, is as we talk to people about, you know what, Jesus, he came to die for you, to forgive you of your sins, if you will turn from your sins and believe in him. People are like, ooh, man, that's a lot. I know, but if you just make him your personal savior, you don't have to worry about church at all. And what happens is we pit, as enemies, the individual against the church. So now the church is not even secondary. It's not like we say, hey, when you make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, he then envelops you into a thing called the church. 
step one, step two. We don't even talk like that. We basically say step one, nothing else matters. And so when we think like that and we, when we act like that, then that's what happens is we just kind of go, really, church membership? What? Isn't it about me and Jesus? All I need is coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. And I have the Instagram picture to prove it. And it's my Bible and my journal and my cup of coffee or tea. So why do I need church? Now here's the other thing is, secondly, I would say this, is institutions are perceived as hindrances to self-flourishing. So when we talk about church membership, we inevitably are talking about an institution called the local church and it has organizational elements and we're like, why would I want to bother with that? That just gets in the way. It's bureaucracy. It's, eh, I don't want all that stuff. I just want to do what I want to do in order to enhance my own spiritual journey. And so if you think about it, if you come to church and you hear me say, say something you don't like, no problem. Just leave and then find the celebrity pastor who writes all the books and, and, and all that kind of stuff and find a sermon that you do like to listen to. If I won't say what you want to hear, just find somebody who will. Or how about this? Do you already have a conclusion? The only problem is you don't have any evidence yet? No problem. You can go to the internet. And in the internet world, you can have a conclusion that you've just kind of made up and you can find some weird evidence to support your conclusion. I no joke Googled this. I have no idea but I found evidence that Jesus is a reincarnated animal. There's entire storyboards and downloadable documents. And I'm going, oh man, the internet, glorious. And so what happens is we spurn the public ministry of the church we abandoned the, the visible church, the institutional organizational church, in favor of a personalized approach where we are well-resourced through the internet. Why bother with like real people in real time when you can sit at home in your PJs and watch celebrity pastor tell you exactly what your itching ears want to hear? Why not? This is easier. Because institutions kind of, you know, they keep you down. They hinder your self-flourishing. But what if God did intend for the church to reflect Jesus on earth? And, and what if God does intend for the church not to be takers in order to enhance self, but to give of yourself for others? Or what if God wants us to put others before ourselves? Like there's a huge thing, which I think can be helpful, but there's a huge thing when faith and fitness go together. Have you noticed this in our culture today? Faith and fitness. So what happens is faith and fitness, when it's fit together and they're kind of synonymous, it means I have to put myself before anyone else because I can't love others until I love myself first. And it sounds reasonable, right? Except for the fact that most of the time, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, the fitness commitment means you have to uncommit from small group and attending church on Sunday and various other things. And so thirdly, here's the, the, the other thing I've noticed is a minimalistic doctrinal essentialism. <laughs> You're like, what did he just say? 
minimalistic doctrinal essentialism. Many people are asking this question, what is the bare minimum I need to believe and do in order to actually be a Christian? What is that? And so what we do is we boil down our beliefs to the most basic. And then we emerge with two categories, essential and non-essential. Essential, Jesus is God. Non-essential, church membership. So essential means you have to believe it in order to go to heaven. Non-essential means you don't have to believe it in order to go to heaven. And what we've done as evangelicals is we've typically said, oh, only the essential matters. Everything else which is non-essential is unimportant. And I'm here to tell you, just because something is non-essential doesn't mean it's unimportant. Let me give you one example. You don't have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. But that does not mean baptism is unimportant. Make sense? So when we boil this down, it's like I'm an individual, I'm a rugged individual, I do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, however I want, and no one can tell me any different because institutions hold me down, they don't let me flourish. And by the way, I'm holding to the basic stuff anyways, the bare minimum, and you know what, everything else, eh, who cares, it's not important. And I think in a lot of ways, that kind of thinking is why when we hear church membership, we go, is it even important? Uh, who cares? But I'm here to say church membership is, and I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, which means I'm kind of making fun of it. Church membership is only as important as obedience to God is important. So... If you want to obey God and that's important to you, then I think church membership should be important to you as well because church membership is a matter of obedience to God. Okay, I've just said that. Now I need to prove it. <laughs> Let's go back to Hebrews 13. Let's see if we can observe some stuff in here. For you grammar nerds, not many of you obviously, <laughs> just me. This text is in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's something you must do. It's not something optional or preferential if you get around to it. It is a command. And it reads this, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, let me just stop there and just ask this simple question. Because this is a command for all of us as Christians that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them. Here's my question, who is that? Who exactly are the leaders that we must obey and submit to? Because here's the thing, if God is gonna command something specific that you must obey leaders, then you must have some idea in your mind who exactly those leaders are to submit to them. You can't just submit to a generic leadership thing. It has to be something specific. So, who is it? Is it just a, a pastor? Any old pastor? Like the wacko pastors from Westboro Baptist Church? Uh, is it an elder? Is it any elders? 
Is it the elders of the Dutch Reformed Church? Is it the elders of Velocity Church in South Carolina? Is it the elders of a Baptist church in, I don't know, Oakland? Who are you exactly supposed to obey and submit to? There has to be something specific. And if you can't name who the leader is or leaders are that you are actively submitting to and obeying, then you're living in disobedience because this is a command. So you need to know who it is. Do you know? I hear folks hedge their bet quite a bit. Uh, I've heard of this. There's a family that goes to one church. Their kids attend the youth group of another church. The wife is a part of a small group at a third church, and they go to a family camp hosted by a fourth church. If the kids are acting foolish, and the pastor comes alongside that family and says, these children need some discipline, which pastor or elder is that family going to submit and obey? The church where they attend or the, the youth group uh, pastor or, or the family church or family camp pastor or the, the pastor who's at the women's Bible study. Like, who exactly are you supposed to submit to? All of them? What if they contradict each other? Then, then none of them? You see, these things have to be answered. You have to answer this. Who are the identifiable and recognizable leaders that God is commanding us to obey and submit to? Who are they? By name. And let me go to a second thing. One of the reasons why we all should obey our leaders and submit to them is because they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. As Pastor Matt preached last week, the leaders in this text is the elders of a local church, which includes their pastors. And so I, being an elder and pastor of this church, I understand that God will hold me accountable for some people's souls. Who exactly? Who exactly is God going to question me about? <laughs> is it going to be like a pop quiz? And he's just like, uh, what did you do about Miguel in Honduras? I didn't know him. Mm, wrong answer. <laughs> Are there certain people that I will be held accountable for? Are there some I won't? How does that work? Some people might say there's a simple answer really. It's just all those people who go to Golden Hills. Go to Golden Hills? What does that mean? <laughs> and what I mean by that is, do you know that the average Christian goes to church 1.7 times a month? So that means a good Christian goes 50% of the time. So I'm accountable to every person who's come half of the time? What if they came kicking and screaming? <laughs> what if they were dragged here against their will? I don't know if that's possible, but let's assume it is. What if they only came once a month? What if they only came six times a year? What about once a year? What about once every five years? What do you mean by those who go? If it's every week, then we're all in trouble. 
Because there's not one of you who have come 52 weeks out of the year. So that means you have no one looking over your life, no one watching over your soul. You're on your own. Scary. As Matt preached last week so faithfully, let me, let me see if this clarifies a little bit. He says, the apostle Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says to the elders, pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now I want you to notice this two-word phrase among you in verse one and also in verse two. Among the church, there are recognizable elders among you. And among the elders, there is a recognizable flock or church among you. And I think that is one of our answers. At least I will not be held accountable for the church in Norway or New Guinea. At least. And you won't be held accountable to be submitting to the pastor of a church in San Diego. Good. It has to be people among you. Which is kind of interesting because uh, over the last, you know, couple years, there's been many people that have left our church. Uh, Like in January, we're probably going to see a couple hundred people removed from our membership roles because they moved. And it's so interesting because when people move, they're just like, yeah, you know, we're moving. God's really called us there. And don't worry. And they'll pat me on the back, you know, as a way of consolation, just kind of like, oh, Pastor Phil, it's okay. You'll always be our pastor. In fact, when we die, we want you to come do our funeral. I'm like, okay. And they're like, and if we have any issues, we'll call you and, and you can help us through it. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I won't. What? I said, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm asked to shepherd the flock of God that is among me. You're in Texas. You're not among me anymore. And therefore, I'm not your pastor anymore. You need to find an elder or a pastor that is among you that you submit to and obey in Texas because I'm not your pastor anymore. And generally, they'll respond by like, oh, that's mean. I was like, no, I love you. Let's talk on the phone. We'll text each other. We'll keep up with what's going on. But as far as shepherding you, I'm not your pastor anymore. And I didn't make that decision. You did. You moved. And some folks will say, well, but we haven't found a church yet and, and we're not gonna really find a church until we get settled and it'll be like seven or eight months before we find a church. And I go, well, hopefully you don't die before then. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting is when I hear folks talk about this, like God, is, God has opened all the doors, we're moving. We don't have a local church. We have no pastor to shepherd us. We have no one watching over our souls. We have no church to commit to. We have no church we're gonna give our time and, and money to. We have no church that we're gonna uh, serve and, and love. But God's definitely calling us there. Really? So God is calling you out of a place into another place where you are willfully gonna be disobedient for up to seven, eight months? 
Let, let me put it differently. No, let me put it exactly the same way. God is calling you to willful disobedience. So let me build a case for church membership with some of these things in place. I will be held accountable for someone, definable people. You all are accountable to submit and obey definable, discernible leaders in the church. And it's people that we have to be among, not out of state, not out of country, not online. So here's the four ways I'm going to do it. I have to do this rather quickly. And the reason I have to do this quickly is because I'm out of time already. Not out of time. I have time, but it's, it's fast. Take the seconds, go in twos rather than ones. I don't know. The first way is this. If we're going to talk about church membership, it seems reasonable that there would be some reason why we should do church membership by way of our own holiness and obedience. Like God wouldn't command us to do stuff for no reason. If God is going to command us to be church members one of another, it's probably for our own benefit, for our own sanctification, for our own spiritual growth. So if that's true, then the Bible should have something to say about that. So that's one way, two ways actually I'm going to do it. The other thing is this, and if you're going to have discernible, definable people, actual people that you can see who are the leaders to be submitted to and the leaders who will have to give an account, then there should be a way to keep track of that. The early church, there should be some evidence of number keeping and some sort of administrative process. Now, if we put these things together, there is numbers, there is an administrative process, and there is a spiritual benefit to it, then we could conclude that yes, church membership is both biblical and good. And so I'm going to build this case from the Bible. I'm going to start with this statement that the early church kept numerical records. The early church kept records, number records. Uh, Verse 15 of Acts 1, there's a prayer meeting. Peter stands up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all 120. They're actually counting people at the prayer meeting. One, two, three. 120 folks gathered up in that place praying. Then Peter preaches, and he preaches from the Old Testament, and people are cut to the heart and convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they call out to Peter, what should we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized, and you receive the Holy Spirit. And those who received his word, verse 41 of chapter 2, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then they continued to preach the gospel, and the apostles went all over Jerusalem preaching and teaching in public. And many who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They're keeping track. Do you notice? They're keeping track of who is doing what. But it's not like an old school revival. You probably heard about these things. The old school revival like in the 40s, 50s, 60s. You big tent, you put up a tent and you preach. You got the music and people are coming down to the altar and raising their hand. It's not like church math. I I make fun of, that's okay. Uh, I can make fun of this. But church math is weird. Like, oh, who wants to believe in Jesus? And there's five people here and you're like, one, two, five, see that hand. Yes, eight, nine, 13, 17. And you're like, wait, are you counting? What are you counting by? Ones, threes? I don't get this. And it's just kind of exponential. 100 people live in the town. 200 people showed up. 486 people got saved. And you're like, what? 
<laughs> Math doesn't add up, but nonetheless. It wasn't like that. They're not counting hands and then everyone just disperses and does their own thing. Instead, look at this in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that they had any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common and with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It wasn't like they just raised their hand, believed in Jesus, boom, and they're out the door never to be seen again. Instead, they were together. They were in each other's homes, breaking bread, praying together, worshiping together, loving on each other, serving each other. Great grace was on them all. Surely looks like church membership to me. In fact, if you wanted a, a vision of what church membership might look like, this is the text I would lead you to. This is what it looks like to be a church member and to be a part of a church as a member. We celebrate grace. We worship God through the gospel. We're committed to his scriptures. We serve and love one another. We meet one another's needs. We have glad and generous hearts. But did you notice in verse 32, the very beginning, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul? Full number? How do you know whether or not you have a full number of something if you don't count? If I have 12 kids on my baseball team and somebody asks, is the whole team here? And I go, yep, all eight of them. That's not the whole team. But the only way to know whether or not you have a full number is if you have an understanding of what the full number is. Or as Acts 6, there was this need and so the office of deacon was established because the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so what happened is the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. It's as if the apostles go, is everyone here? Uh, yeah, yeah, everyone's here. All right, let's go, let's start. How do you know if everyone is here unless you know how many everyone is? Does that make sense? He's like, duh. And so the full number shows up. And if you notice in Acts 6, what Pastor Matt preached on last week too with the deacons is that they began to develop an administrative process in order to meet the physical needs of those widows. They raised up these seven spirit-filled men in order to administer the distribution of the resources. There was an administrative component to what they were doing. Not only that, but there were some widows who were in the early church in Ephesus particularly, some of them were wanting help from the church. Others were also wanting help, but only some of them got help. Some widows were left out. Why is that? Well, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she meets these qualifications. And the word enrolled there, does that not give you an idea of administration? Like when you enroll to school, you have to like fill out paperwork. So some widows were enrolled while other widows were not enrolled because there were certain qualifications that were explained and some met the qualifications and others did not. There is an administrative component to all this. And so what I would conclude is this, that the early church 
not only kept numerical records, but they also developed administrative processes to organize their ministries and churches. That means they had the possibility, they had the kind of groundwork of the whole church membership stuff. There was a formal side to church. They knew who was in and who was out. They counted who was in and who was not. Now the next thing is about spiritual growth and stuff. Is there a beneficial side to church membership? And what I'm gonna say is this. The one another commands in the Bible, in the New Testament, they imply church membership. Which means whenever you see a, a command in the Bible that says go and you know, love one another, serve one another, that one another command is an implication of church membership. Here's how. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus commands love. Now if I ask the question, who is the one another in verse 34, how would you answer? Is it everyone indiscriminately? Is it certain people? And how do you know? Now some people would say it is everybody. And you go, okay, it's everybody. But verse 35 indicates to us that it's not just you should love everybody, but you should love a particular somebody. Look at this in verse 35. By this, that is the love of one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, there is an identifying marker to discipleship. And that marker, that identifier is love. But the love in this context is interdisciple love. Because if anybody just loves anybody, and that is how you know who's a Christian and who isn't, then anybody who loves somebody is a Christian. But we know that not to be true. There are many people who love their relatives and friends and coworkers who are not Christians. And so what we would conclude is, Actually, the evidence of whether or not you are Jesus' disciple is by your love for other disciples. Now, how do we know who's a disciple and who isn't? Do we just take them at their word? What if they're a wolf in sheep's clothing? Is there any indicators that we could lay out to know and, and, and to make ourselves safe that we don't love people who are intent to harm us? I think so. And I think the implication is you will know the disciples from the non-disciples in some formal, significant way. And I would say church membership. Or another one, I'll just jump down to verse 13. This is a commands all over the place about one another, loving one another, uh, rejoicing and being prayer and all kinds of good stuff. Look at verse 13. Paul says, you need to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Who exactly are the saints? And how do you identify who is and who is not a saint? You just take them at their word? Are there not some qualifications at all? I mean, you got qualifications to get resources from the church, but you don't have qualifications as to whether or not you are admitted into the church? That seems weird. So who are the saints to whom we are obliged to contribute, to serve, to meet their needs? Who are these definite people that we should serve in this way? Or Galatians 6, 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How do you know who's spiritual and who isn't? Is it because they have tarot cards and crystals? Are they the spiritual people that we as the church submit to? Hey, can you read my palm? Tell me what's up. There should be discernible, identifiable people to whom we would submit to. Or, look at this in verse 2, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Am I to bear everyone's burdens? I can barely bear my own burdens. But I think the one another here is very specific in Paul's mind. He's saying, no, 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 you, one another, you in the church, bear one another's. Well, how do I know who's in the church and who isn't? If everyone just comes 1.7 times a month, do I bear that person's burden? I don't even know if they're a Christian. Do I bear this person's? They only come three times a year. Do you see the implications of this? I can't tell. You're even more quiet than the 830 service. You got more sleep than they did. I think you're thinking. I hope you're thinking. So let's go to the the fourth thing is the metaphors of the church. And this one's real simple. We know the metaphors of the church, the images of the church. uh, The New Testament calls the church the body of Christ, the structure, a building, a flock. And we understand that there is no such thing as a flock of sheep when there's no sheep. A flock of sheep means there has to be sheep. In other words, there has to be some sort of member. There has to be a thing to make up this big thing. And here's how Paul puts it, that God has arranged the members in the body, and the body there is the metaphor for the church. So God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all, that's every one of the members, were a single member, That is, you didn't belong to a body, you didn't belong to a church, you just were on your own, you're a free agent. Where would the body be? If being a Christian is just you do your own thing, then where's the church? And the rhetorical question is, the answer is it's nowhere. There is no church. But as it is, there are many parts and yet one body. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so this is an implication that church membership matters. So you and I are always thinking about membership in terms of like Costco. If I'm a member of Costco, I not only have access to hot dogs at the food court, but a bigger jar of mayonnaise than could possibly (laughs) I even need in a lifetime. My membership dues avail me to certain privileges and all that kind of stuff. And so we would expect in the Bible, it says, thou must be member. And you're like, oh, okay. But the Bible doesn't do that. It assumes membership. Because membership in a body is like your actual members of your body. Nobody ever thinks their finger alone is a body. Nobody ever thinks that their children need to be asked to be a part of the family. You were born into the family. You are a member of it by default. Likewise, when you are born by the Holy Spirit, you are members of the body of Christ invisibly. But there should be some visible expression of that invisible reality. 
Just like when the Holy Spirit washes you clean of your sin and then that inward, invisible thing happens, you are then to be baptized in order to visualize that invisible thing. Likewise, if you are born into the invisible kingdom of God, there has to be a visible expression of that. And I would say it's church membership. Maybe you're not convinced yet. And now we go to church discipline. Church discipline, by definition, is the church's act of confronting someone's sin and calling them to repentance. It's not my responsibility, it's the church's responsibility to confront someone's sin and call them to repentance. In the Belgic Confession, which I quoted in 1561, it was written to distinguish the Roman Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. They, talked, they, they asked the question, how do you identify a true church? They're not asking the question of a good church, they're asking for a true church, which by the way is a better question. I know today it's like, do you know any good churches? No, but I know some true churches. Well, people don't really care if a church is true or not. They just care if it's good. And what do you mean by good? Is the pastor funny and is the music awesome? But you can go to a good church and it not be a true church. Why? Because the gospel is not faithfully preached. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not faithfully administered and there is no practice of church discipline. Because in 1561, the distinguishing mark between a true true church and a not true church are those three things. The pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, and the practice of church discipline. So the Protestants from the 1400s all the way through understood that if you wanted to find a church to belong to, you look for those three things. The gospel faithfully preached, which is you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. And it will be a church where you are learning about baptism and communion. That baptism does not save you, neither does communion give you grace in order to be saved. You understand what those mean, and also there's church discipline happening. Now, why would church discipline be a part of an identifier, identifying a true church? It's because Jesus commanded it. And any church that does not want to do what Jesus commanded (laughs) is probably not a true church in the body of Christ sense. You tracking with me? I just can't tell today. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) If I was in a classroom right now, I'd be like, all right, you talk back to me. But the teacher in me, I have to suppress it. Here's what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, not on Facebook. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Don't start a Facebook group. Verse 17, if he refuses even to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So here's the scenario. You as the church have a a fellow member, a brother or sister in Christ who sins against you. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. Seek reconciliation and restoration. And in love, seek that that man or woman repents. And if they refuse to repent, then what you need to do is take two or three faithful people 
who know about the situation and can be witnesses and you go back to that person and you talk to them again seeking restoration and reconciliation and calling them lovingly to repentance. If they refuse that second step, then you have to go to a third step, which is you need to go and tell it to the church. Who constitutes the church? Like North America? We need to get every, like a big, one big Zoom call. All the churches in North America, unite. Is it all the churches in Antioch? Is it all the churches, I don't know, in Western civilization? What is it? How do we obey Jesus' direct command if we are not definitively understanding what he means by the church? You can't. You have to have an identifiable amount of people who we can point to and say, yes, you are part of this. You need to come with us. Now, if this person refuses to repent, even when the church calls him to repentance, then this person is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. And in New Testament parlance, that means he is to be treated as an unbeliever. You're to kick him out of the church. You can't be kicked out of anything if you're not already in it. So there has to be some sort of membership thing going on here. So we at Golden Hills, we, have, uh, we follow this church discipline many times. Many of you will confront somebody and then maybe there's not repentance, reconciliation, and then you know, there'll be two or three witnesses and, and think the Lord will work it out by his grace and it's amazing. Other times it doesn't work that way. People will contact us as elders and they say, hey, we have this situation. We've done step one and step two. We need some help. So we'll come in and we'll sit down and talk to this party and that party and we'll try to sort some things out, see the sin where we can. We say, look, you need to repent of this. And if this person refuses to repent, even at the elders' encouragement, then what we do is then we will contact the the members of our church and we'll give a two-week notice that we're going to have an emergency congregational meeting and we're going to bring the accusations of this person up to, to you all. And we'll tell you exactly point by point what happened, who said what, and and the heirs there, when it happened, and what we called as elders to action, uh, the repentance, and the person refused it. And then we will ask for a vote of our membership to vote this person out of the church. Now, instead of following that process, many people, because we've done this process a few times, and we've actually gone through this process even in the last couple months. And people, instead of going through the humiliation of being brought in front of the church, they just go, fine, I'm leaving, and they go to the church down the street. But they're not helped. If you go from this church with unrepentant sin to another church with unrepentant sin, you're gonna mess that church up. So it's in our best interest as a church that when people come to us, we ask questions like, in the church you're leaving, are there any issues that you have left unresolved? And people have said, yes, I got mad at the pastor, I called them names and we left and we wanna come to Golden Hills and it's like, You're not welcomed here. You need to go back and get right with your brother and follow the steps of Matthew 18. And once you repent of that sin and once you get right with your brother, you're reconciled and stuff, then we can welcome you. And people get mad. Like, why are you mad at me, bro? I'm just trying to do what what Jesus says to do. And praise God, God protects us from potential pain by enacting church discipline. And Jesus makes this promise, I say to you, whatever you bind, you, the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
We have the authority to enact church discipline, not because we assumed authority, but because Jesus has delegated it to us. Not us as in me, us as in the membership of the church. So he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And I know, sadly, verse 20 is usually the theme verse for prayer ministries, but it's about church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see, when the church gathers in the name of Jesus to enact church discipline, Jesus is giving his approval. Now, let me give you one quick example. I'm not going to go through the details of this, but let's see this in real life uh, through the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, in actuality, or, and it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. A man is having sexual relationship with his stepmom horrible right but look at the church's response you were arrogant and it says later on that they were boasting about it instead Paul says verse 2 ought you not rather to mourn and then he says this let him who has done done this let him be removed from among you you need to kick not just that sin out of your church you need to kick that man out of your church but how do you get kicked out of a church that you don't belong to? How do you get removed from something you were never in in the first place? So for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if, in, if present, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the man who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, remember Matthew 18, 20, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them also. So when you are gathered as a church to enact church discipline, and my spirit is present, Paul says, then with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does it mean to be delivered to Satan? Is there like a, like a postal spot you can drop people off and they get on a bus to, to Satan land? I think what it means is it's connected to the end of verse two, which is remove this man from among you is the same thing as deliver this man to Satan. That is to say, if you identify with God and his people called the church, then you are a member of it. If you do not identify with God and his people, then you are not a member of it. So let me put it differently even again. There are those who are identifying with God as members of the church and those who are not identifying with God because they're not members of the church. In Paul's mind, you're either in the church or you're not. You're either a member or you're not. You're either God's or you're not. So is it God or is it Satan? And we don't know any different. If you're not a member of a local church, we don't know whether you're God's or Satan's. We just have to default know, well, you don't want to be a part of the church, so I guess you're Satan's. Until further notice. Let's keep, keep going. He says, your boasting's not good. You're boasting about this man sleeping with his stepmom. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that if you harbor this sin, you're gonna ruin the church? You need to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. How in the world can you allow sin and a unrepentant sinner to stay in your church when the whole point of having a church is that Jesus has a bride who is spotless 
It makes no sense. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You can no longer have this man in the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter that you're not to associate with sexually immoral people. And of course, you would say, wait a minute, there's a lot of people out there who are sexually immoral. You mean I can't like live in the world and interact with people? No, 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 not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters. Says then you would have to go out of the world. Paul is saying, look, I'm not saying you can't interact with unbelievers who send their brains out because if you weren't allowed to do that, then you'd have to leave the earth, live on Mars until other people shut up. And then you have to go to the next planet, you know? No, 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 I'm not saying that. He says, what I'm writing to you about is this, that you're not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother but is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And what he means, of course, is, look, it's not just that you say you're a Christian, it's that you say you're a Christian, but it has been proven that you are publicly guilty of sin for which you will not repent. And if you are a Christian who refuses to repent of your sin, then it's the obligation of the church to say, you can have nothing to do with us. Because Jesus came to cleanse and heal, not to harbor sin, that we can have guilt-free immorality. Don't even eat with such a person. You You can't even be in fellowship with these people who will not repent of their sins and yet say they love Jesus. Now, doesn't this sound judgy? You're like, oh man, judgment, yuck. Of course, it is judgment, but if we do not judge, we are living in disobedience. Here's what Paul says, what in the world do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? How do you evaluate who's inside and outside the church? How do you know who's in so you can judge them and who's out so you don't judge them. If it's just like, eh, who cares? It's unimportant. So we judge no one or we judge everyone? Is everyone in or no one in? How do you obey this without some sort of detail? Without church membership? You can't. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. (laughs) Here's what I love about this verse. Maybe you didn't see it. We as Christians today have a reputation that we love to judge the people outside the church. We get outraged, we get mad. Can you believe this? They're acting like unbelievers, cause they are. I don't know if you knew this or not, but unregenerate people will act like unregenerate people. It is not shocking for unbelievers to look like unbelievers, to act like unbelievers, and to live like unbelievers. What is shocking is when people who say they're believers act as though they're not. Are you and I not more appalled that people who say they're followers of Jesus don't speak like it, don't live like it, don't love like it, aren't patient like it? And yet this text says, don't worry about the people outside the church. Tend your own lawn. And so for me as a pastor, one of the reasons why I don't always just look at our politicians. No, look at our pews. The judgment of God begins with the household of God. 
And so we, brothers and sisters, need to make sure that we're answering the question, am I in the faith? Am I in the church? Am I submitting to God authoritative leadership? Am I walking in obedience? Am I repenting of sins wherever they come up? Am I committing myself to God and others? These are big questions because it basically means are you a church member? Well, let me put it this way, last thing, maybe you're not convinced yet, this should be the it. This one, 2 Corinthians chapter two, this guy who's committing this horrible sin in verse six, Paul says, you know what, this man, this punishment of kicking him out of the church, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or else he will be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Majority of what? What is 51% of nothing? It's not a majority. How do you enact church discipline and how do you inflict judgment and how is it to be done by majority if you don't keep track of who's in and out? If you don't have an idea who's the church and who isn't? You need church membership in order to answer any of these questions and in order to obey church discipline. I don't want to say, have I convinced you yet? But that's what I want to say. Because I'm fully convinced, brothers and sisters, that church membership is a matter of discipleship, not preference. Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian. It's characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to live out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. It's mutually dependent. Let me just lastly do this. Membership is not a contract, it's a covenant. Contracts are things you can break if you don't get your end. Like if you sign up with T-Mobile and you're like, dude, my, my, my coverage is spotty, I'm done with this. A covenant is a blood earnest commitment for a lifetime. And what God wants us to do is covenant together to be covenant members. Why? Because it's the blood of Christ, verse 13, by which we come to Jesus. Jesus himself is our peace, and he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And in place of two different people who are different from each other, God has created one new man in place of the two and so making peace, verse 15. Verse 16, he's reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. You and I always think of my relationship with God is me in a covenant with God privately and intimately. And that's true. Jesus shows us by his blood in the institution of the Lord's Supper that by this blood is the inauguration of the new covenant. I am yours and you're mine. But we have to also understand that that covenant that we get into between us individually and God is also something which is shared horizontally. The blood of Christ that gives us peace with God is also the blood of Christ that gives us peace with each other. So if we're in covenant relationship with God, we're also in covenant relationship with each other. Which means you didn't choose your family, naturally speaking, and you don't get to choose your spiritual family either. God made us brothers and sisters. God made us the household of God. We are family 
covenantal family, which means God wants us to have a blood earnest respect for each other and a blood earnest intensity for our love and service and devotion to one another. And you can't do that haphazardly, preferentially, or in relationships of choice. At some point, it's not like I'm a church member, if I decide that, you know what, I'll take the next step. It's am I in or out of the church? Am I in Christ or not? Am I in the covenant or not? Am I saved by the grace of God or not? Am I washed by the blood of Christ or not? And the answer to are you a church member is your answer to those questions. If what we've just seen is true, that the blood of Jesus enacts a covenant not only with God but with each other. This, brothers and sisters, is the most reassuring thing in the world to me. Here's the essence of church membership. The essence of church membership. This is how you should think about it. We as the church, we as the church, not the elders, not the pastor, we as the church, when we welcome people into membership, we basically do this. We're saying, you look like a Christian to us, and so join us. You watch our back, and we're gonna watch yours so that Christ's name will be renowned among the world. I got you, I got you, I'll watch after you. I don't know about you, but those kinds of words mean so much to me. You mean you got my back, I got your back. I'm for you because Christ is for us. And in essence, that's what church membership is. Here at Golden Hills Community Church, we have a covenant that I'm gonna read and I know I'm out of time with big red numbers up there. I wanna read this and then just close. Those of us who are members of Golden Hills Community Church, I wanna remind you of the blood earnest commitment we make to each other, to watch one another's back, to encourage one another, all the more as we see the day of God drawing near, to exhort you, spur you on towards love and good deeds. This is what we committed to each other. And if you're not a church member, I just wanna remind you, this this is what you're missing out on. Having been led by the Holy Spirit of God to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to confess him as Lord, and on confession of this faith, having been baptized in the name of the triune God, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ to lead a life worthy of the Lord in all things, giving him the preeminence. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love and in the paths of righteousness. With this in view, we engage to strive together for both the peace and purity of this church, to sustain its worship and to hold to its ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute as faithful stewards such time, talents, and money in the measure that God prospers each of us, that the responsibility for the work of the local church and the worldwide ministry of gospel witnessing may be effectively and faithfully discharged. We strive to maintain family and private devotions, to teach the Bible to our children, to seek the salvation of our relatives and acquaintances, to be just in our dealings and faithful in our activities, to be exemplary in our behavior, to avoid unkind words and unrighteous anger, to combine zeal and knowledge in our efforts to advance the cause of our Savior, to make Christ first in all things, both spiritual and temporal. We further agree to give and receive correction with meekness and love, 
to remember each other in prayer and to aid each other in case of illness or distress, to cultivate sympathy and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the scriptures to seek it without delay, to encourage one another in the blessed hope of the Lord's return. I have promised this to you and many of you have promised this to each other. And by God's grace, we will live according to it. And if you're not yet a member of our church, we wholeheartedly welcome you to join us. And if you are a member of this church, remember the covenant that you swore to keep. Father, we pray that you would remind us that this church membership topic is about obedience. It's about obeying things you've asked us to do. It's about obeying church discipline. It's about obeying what it means to be the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's about obedience to the one another commands. Lord, we confess to you that we know that so long as the people to whom we are supposed to love and supposed to bear their burdens and supposed to forgive and supposed to pray for go unnamed, then we don't have to actually do any of it. And so God, we confess to you that we fail. We fail to know our brothers and sisters like we ought to. We fail to acknowledge them and we fail to love and serve them as we ought to. And so God, grant us your abiding grace. And Lord, may we have a vision of church membership like the book of Acts, where we are of one heart and mind, unified in the gospel, that we celebrate the grace of God, that we value one another and put one another above and before ourselves, that we serve each other, that when any of us are sick, we attend to their needs, because when any of us suffers, we all suffer. And I pray, Lord, that when any of us rejoice, that we all rejoice, there would be no jealousy or rivalry or envy found in this place. And where there is, I pray, God, for quick conviction of the Holy Spirit that we would confess our sins and repent that we may be the spotless bride you want us to be. And when we refuse to repent, I pray that there would be brothers and sisters who love us enough to say something. And that you would be pleased by their kindness and yours to bring us to repentance so that we will have been won by our brothers and sisters, reconciled and restored. And Father, we know that if we are going to be a church that is united in the gospel, we have to display the truth of the gospel and how we live. The gospel transcends racial division. The gospel transcends socioeconomic divisions. But if we only gather in church with people who are, look like us and think like us, then what we're saying is the gospel is not powerful at all. But God, in this church, we pray that the membership roles would reflect ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, so that we can display to the world, if you wanna know what it looks like to be in unity, look at us. So God, unite us together in all of our differences because Christ, by his blood, has brought us near together. So God, may we make the gospel visible through church membership. 
And I pray that you would do this, please. And you would get the glory and we would get the joy. In Jesus' name, amen.